Hello everyone and welcome to yet another episode of the world's greatest boxing podcast, I Like Boxing with Joe and Joel. I'm Joseph Caulfield, joined as always by the one and only, the man, the myth, the legend, the boxing scholar himself, Joel Ilier. Joel, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Joe. How are you? I've been better, mate. I'm not going to lie. It's been a, a pretty savage week at work, but there you go. You sometimes have these weeks. Why don't you give us all the details, Joe? I'm not sure I will. Confidentiality and all that, but uh, having spoken to you privately, you know, <laughs> you know how bad it's been. <laughs> better than last week or the week before that when I was being physically assaulted, but there you go. These, you know, <sighs> I say these things happen. These things don't really happen. It's what happens when you work in a women's prison, mate. <laughs> I wish I did work in a women's <laughs> prison, to be honest. <laughs> anyway, how are you? Good, good, good. Yeah, splendid. Yes, it sounds yeah. like your, you know, your working life is a bit better than mine. But uh, mm. you know, it can all change, Joel. <laughs> you oh, never no, know. <laughs> life has its ups and downs. It does indeed. Right, we should just jump straight in to the boxing. Let's start off with the news. There's not really been, well, there's certainly been no fights worthy of reviewing. So we're going to jump straight in. Anthony Joshua against Dillian White. Their rematch has been set for August the 12th at London's O2 Arena. And how do you feel about this fight, Joel? I love the fight, Joe. This is what we want. A nice British domestic dust up. This is where they're at in their careers. They've got nowhere else to go. It's going to make whoever wins next fight far bigger. It's going to be the biggest British fight of the year. I'm loving it, mate. Yeah. I have to say, I, I did feel a bit meh when it was announced in the sense that I... Spend too much time on Twitter. No, I'm not... Because I've been told that the overwhelming reaction on social media has been negative. It ain't, mate, but sorry. Go, go on. You're right. It has been... A, a little bit negative. I wouldn't say overwhelmingly so, but it's definitely there's been quite a lot of negative vibes around it. The reason why I'm a bit meh about it is because I think Dillian White is basically shot, and I just don't see this being a particularly competitive fight. I also think AJ is obviously, you know, he's past his best. And it was funny actually, I sent a tweet out saying, AJ versus Dillian White, what a fight this would have been about eight years ago. Oh, hang on a sec. <laughs> They've already fought. And it was great. It was brilliant. It was. But I do take your point that given the juncture, the junctures that, you know, both their respective careers are in at the moment, it is, you know, really the only fight that they have. However, I do, what I will say is, I, I, you know, this fight is perfectly acceptable to me as long as AJ wins and fights Deontay Wilder in December. Then the heavyweight division, you know, becomes a bit more respectable yeah, again. No, fair enough. And we want that fight. We want that fight badly, but we can't wait around for that to happen. We keep getting told different things about that fight mm. and the Fury-Usyk fight. All this, They're not happening anytime soon. They're definitely not happening this year. So yeah. we're talking about 2024. I don't want a fight not to happen this summer yeah. because we might get a fight that we want to watch next year at some point, maybe in Saudi Arabia. No, I'm not interested in that, mate. I want to see... Big British fights in London taking place. Yeah. And they are, as we said before, as you, you alluded to, they're meeting at the sort of saying they're both on the way down. Mm. A lot of the time that that sort of creates something quite good, actually, if they're meeting in the same spot. Yeah. They've got nothing to lose. Sort of, well, they have got something to lose. I guess big paydays, as, as you mentioned. But I, I think that the, the ag that they've got between them will mean that they'll go into this. This will get Josh firing Joshua's belly. We want to see him come out and give one of them sort of commanding performances again. He yeah. knows that he can knock out Dillian White. Yeah. He's done it before. He knows that the way he did that was to fight through fire yeah. and to go on the front foot and take it to him. Dillian White has truly got nothing to lose in it. Yeah. This is his last chance. Yeah. And I just think, yeah, rekindles old rivalry is brilliant, man. Yeah. I just I slightly... Going on a different uh, track, so to speak, uh, I mentioned to you earlier that Matt Christie did a short, shortish interview with uh, AJ and it was on the Boxing News podcast. And I started listening to it on the way to work this morning. And uh, like I say, I always find AJ quite peculiar to listen to because he, you know, he's... he. He's, he's very odd to listen to. I have to say, just, he, you know, I always feel like he's very unsure in his own skin, but he always tries to give off the vibe of being very sure in yeah. his own skin. But one thing he said, which I wanted to discuss with you, is that he he spoke about his relationship with Robert Kraken. He said, look, he's a very good coach, but, 
And then what he said actually next was quite funny. He went, but Carl Frotch's nose. <laughs> and he then went on to say, look, I wasn't learning defense with Rob McCracken. And he said, at the level of heavyweight fights that I was fighting, I was getting tagged way too often. Now, my initial response to that is, well, before I come on to that, what he's trying to do with Derek James very clearly because he says so is he's trying to become a better boxer and he's trying to do so in this second phase of his career i don't think he's a a good enough boxer to be brutally honest to be changing his style to be that sort of fighter he will coast in a 12 round fight on points against the likes of jermaine franklin and dillian white he cannot be a boxer against the elite in that division he has to go back to old aj i'm sorry to win those fights well, he's now been trying this for years and years, actually. It's not just since uh, his hookup with Derek James. He started talking about the need for him to be more defensive in his style for longevity in the Joseph Parker fight mm. years back in the build-up to that one. And he did. That was the first time we saw him come out and just completely box an opponent. His fight before that was the fight against Klitschko. That one changed him. He's mm. never boxed us the same since. Yeah. I think the only one where he got it really right ever since with that from between boxer and fighter was, I would say, the Alexander Povetkin fight. I yeah. thought he hit on a perfect style for himself there. Yeah. And that was under Rob McCracken. Yeah. yeah. That was, he was learning, he was doing stuff. I heard him um, say similar comments in an, I think it was an IFL TV interview recently about his time with Robert Garcia. Yeah. And he said, well, I heard Usyk's camp talking about how they wanted to get the fight on, the rematch on quicker because they didn't want me spending more time with with uh, Garcia. Yeah. But I was sat there and I was thinking, well, I'm not learning anything with Garcia. Yeah. Bloody hell, you're not learning anything from Rob McCracker. You're not learning anything from Garcia. Yeah. So what's what's Derek James got different? I do think Derek James is a great coach, but so are the other two. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, he wasn't being critical of Robin McCracken. He wasn't, you know, there's clearly no real, there's no real will, but... I, it's absolving himself of responsibility. Yeah, that's, I totally agree with you. And I do think there's an element of that where Rob McCracken must be thinking, like, give it a bit of a rest. Like, yeah. I've played a pivotal part in your career and part in you becoming a world champion. And maybe, you know, he needs to acknowledge the fact that his that style of fighting then when he was a real go for it sort of heavyweight that was the right style for him at the time that got him success and i i just personally believe having seen aj fight he is not a good enough pure boxer to be to adopt that style against the top heavyweights he is good enough to if he can implement the plan correctly he's had some he had some success against like the second usik fight at one point, I thought he was going to stop Usyk in that, that round before Usyk turned it, was it around. Ninth, was it? He had a fantastic yeah. round. Usyk was very clearly hurt and he was, he was really going for it. That's the AJ that can win those top-level um, fights. But again, it comes back to how good is AJ. Fighters like Lennox Lewis were good enough boxers to be able to have the perfect balance between being you know, a bludgeoning puncher and a really good boxer. I think AJ's more of a bludgeoning puncher and that's what he should try and stick to. The sweet science talk, you know, okay, I sort of see it prolonging your career, et cetera, et cetera. He's spoken very openly of this being the second phase of his career. He even said, look, Rob McCracken had my best years. I wish I'd met Derek James earlier. It does feel like a bit of a, punt, you know, below the belt kicking the balls to Rob McCracken. But remember, he was saying all this about Robert Garcia as well. Yeah. And now he's saying the opposite about Robert Garcia. Yeah. They just, boxers generally just talk a whole manner of shit before their fights about how good their relationship with their trainer is, no matter what on earth yeah. is going on. They just say stuff, mate. It's yeah. all trying to get, it's the art of war, they're trying to get in their opponent's head. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's all perfect, I'm, I'm better than ever. They'll both, <laughs> Dillian White and AJ will both be saying before this fight, I'm better than ever. It's my best camp ever. Yeah. My relationship with my coach is my best relationship with a coach ever. I wish I was with them earlier on in my career. They'll both do it. They'll yeah. both say it. It'll be an absolute load of rubbish. We'll all know it's rubbish. Yeah. Amir Khan said before the Kel Brook fight, he'd never fought better. <laughs> Felt better, <laughs> should I say. Certainly didn't fight better. Yeah, certainly didn't. <laughs> so, no. But yeah, I just, you know, I, 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 I listened to Anthony Joshua and I just, I just feel a lot of confusion Mm. He's never he's never found the right seems like he's never found the right style or personality yeah. for himself in boxing. It's, he's never felt sort of comfortable 
I, I think he was probably too successful too early on in his career. Well, that I think, probably I, is it. It's it's too successful too early on, too much fame, too much pressure, and maybe he needed to develop more as a fighter. But he was obviously a massive star. He was the Olympic gold medal winner. Uh, winning uh, heavyweight at the 2012 Olympics, he was a he's a good looking lad. He's very marketable, you know. Maybe he was never capable of it though. Yeah, as in he started in the sport really late. I think he was 18 when he got into the sport. Yeah, he isn't the most obviously gifted of fighters. He's mm. not. He's not an incredible mover or anything like this. He's, yeah, he's just a. He seems to. It may be that he actually got the most out of his talent quite young. It gave us unrealistic expectations. Yeah, self unrealistic expectations of what he could do and achieve in a sport. He was a far bigger star. Yeah. than he was a superstar athlete if you see what I mean. So just very briefly before we move on, I remember there was someone, I can't remember who it was, but someone said something about um, AJ Wilder and they said AJ is going to get absolutely polaxed in this fight because he hasn't got good enough head movement to avoid the right hand from Deontay Wilder. And unless you're a really good boxer and you can really, you've got that sort of herky-jerky, slip a lot, Usyk, perfect example... AJ is not going to be able to box like that against any heavyweight. He's going to get caught at some point, so he might as well just try and go for it against the elite. I genuinely think that unless he fights fire with fire with Wilder, he's getting completely annihilated. Yeah, I've always thought that that one is a who lands first type of fight. But I actually want to say something before we move on as well, actually, is that for all we're saying this about AJ, it sounds a little bit negative. Yeah, one thing that I think this fight is proving again yes. is that AJ is always up for the toughest challenges. I've no doubt that yeah. the Tyson Fury fight not happening is Tyson Fury's yeah, fault. I've got course. no doubt yeah. that the Deontay Wilder fight not happening so far is Deontay Wilder's yeah. fault. He's shown throughout his career, he takes the toughest available opposition at all times. That also may be why his level has been exposed. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And we're going to, you know, there's another news piece that we'll touch on later. <laughs> I'm sure our listeners know exactly what it is. Right, Cruiserweight King Jay Opatai has signed for Matchroom and the Zone. Joel, who is Jay going to be fighting next? I've got no idea, Joe, because Matchroom, <laughs> from memory, don't really have any cruiserweights. You sure about that? Yeah. <laughs> this could be a very poor piece of news if we uh, get this one totally <laughs> Yeah, no, I am sure about that, actually. This is why I think it's an awful move and such a shame he had this fight. He could have fought against Chris Billum Smith. He could have fought against Richard Viakpour. He could have fought against even Lawrence Coley. Not that anyone's particularly interested in that fight now, if he'd carried on his seeming budding relationship with Sky. Instead, he's moved over to Matchroom, who have no cruiserweight of no... Who cares? He's not going to fight anyone decent over there. Mm. He's gone to them. Matchroom have obviously signed him to essentially block box off from being able to make fights that we want to see. Yeah. And they've also signed him because uh, they are making a big push in Australia and he's obviously a big Australian star. Yeah. So you can see while they're doing it. There's, this is all part of their deal with Tasman Boxing, yeah. who are a new professional outfit that have signed a deal with the zone. So, you know. That kind of makes sense. I want to touch on your point that you, your view is that uh, Matchroom have signed him really to block the biggest fights in the cruiserweight division happening. Obviously, the other boxers we spoke about are all with um, Sky and Boxer. I mean, this if if that's true, which it probably is. I mean, this is yet another reason why boxing is just in the state it's in. Yeah, it's another reason why the whole um, you know capitalism breeds. Uh, competition in business argument and that is good for any of the products um, is just absolutely flawed we see it in boxing now where all the divisions are so fragmented and the fights can't be made anywhere because they're all boxing as I say they're all on the other side of the street mm. it's just getting when when this happens in this sort of division the cruiserweights no one's a star Mm. They need to fight each other for them to become stars and for it to become a particularly interesting division. Yeah. And we were just on the precipice. We could all see it happening and bosh, there we go, bubble burst. Exactly the same way as what's happened with the light middleweights with Jamel Charlo and Tim Zhu. Need to fight each other to become major stars and bosh, that's out the window now. Yeah. So now what's happening with the junior middleweight division? What's interesting there? Nothing really. What's interesting now in the cruiserweight division? Nothing really. In fact, it's so uninteresting that Chris Billum Smith, who isn't a big name <laughs> no, in the sport, I know what you're about to is say. now talking about moving up to heavyweight. Yeah, no. To fight Usyk. 
God's sake. I mean, who's interested in that? No, not at all. You know, Chris Bidham Smith, he's an entertaining fighter. He gives it his all. We love the guy yeah, on this we show. Do, yeah. But for God's sake, we've got no interest in him fighting Usyk. Yeah. No one's got any interest in that. Yeah. Fight your competitors and your rivals at your weight. It will make you a bigger star. Yeah. Well, I mean, he does have the Reactpour fight, which is, uh, you know, that is a, a big fight. Dude. It's not a huge fight because they're both not stars. They're both not household names. But it will be huge in this country be, if they fight. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, Joe Cordina is uh, scheduled to fight in Cardiff on September the 30th against uh, an unnamed opponent we do not know yet. Joe Cordina, what a fighter. Well, I'm hoping it's Selfa Barrett that he fights. Because that yes. would be a good fight. Well, no, I'm not sure it is actually. I'm sure I saw him on Twitter talking about the Zelfa Barrett fight and there was another one and he was basically saying that they're not big enough money fights for him. Yes, but... but we'll see. I'm not entirely sure on that, Joel. He, he did say that, but um, Eddie Hearn actually came out separately and addressed that and he said, and I agree with Eddie here, he said, look, um, you know, he wants the unification fights in his division, mm. but he needs some bigger, some fights to build towards that because... We haven't got the money behind him. He can't. Selling a few thousand at Cardiff Arena isn't going to fund unification fights. And this is where I think the boxers need to be realistic. Yeah. These days, everyone's looking for them, that super money. Mm. Big fight. He says, oh, I want to fight Oshaku Foster That's in the it. unification. Yes, That's yeah, what he's That's saying. the one, yeah. It, um, but it's going to cost a load of money to do that. Yeah. And he doesn't, he's not going to take the short end of the purse. Yeah. So he's got to be realistic. Yeah. Neither of you are big stars. It's not going to do massive numbers on telly. Yeah. You're not going to sell 50,000 mm. at the Millennium Stadium. So how do you want to fund this? Either you take the short money and gamble on yourself to become a, a bigger fighter and a bigger star. Yeah. Or you don't, or you make big domestic fights to build your name, build the fights and move on. Yeah. And that's what he should be doing, man. That's what I want to see him doing. Again, a nice domestic fight with two fighters that are brilliant to watch, lovely fighters. Their styles should gel beautifully. Yeah. Brilliant. Bring it on, man. Yeah, no, it'll be a great fight. But I fancy Cordina to win that quite oh, comfortably yeah. on points. I mean, he's a, he's just I mean, he's levels above. But an interesting fight, definitely. Not, not a sentiment I disagree with at all there, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Jared Anderson, fresh off his win over the Burger King, Charles Martin, will be back in action very quickly against Andre Rudenko on August the 26th. I saw a lot of criticism coming in for him when this was announced. And the re- the reason being, you know, who who's Andre Rudenko? He's just fought Charles Martin. It's, it's Surely it's time to push him. But you, you mentioned it. It was the time to put the brakes on him after that. Yeah. And that's what they look like they're doing. Let's Do keep know- him active, but let's give him a, a very winnable fight. Yeah, do you know who he reminds me of, Rodenko? No. Marius Wack, mate. Oh, really? Oh, he's, yeah. that, he's a so tall... He's that sort of fighter. He's a big guy. Yeah. He's going to take punishment. He's going to land a few on the way. He's just a gatekeeper of the division. He beats journeymen and fighters of that ilk. But any time he steps off and fights against any kind of elite in the division or top European level in the division, he loses. That's fine. That's where Jared Anderson is at the moment. He's got to, he needs to learn his craft and he needs to do that in the ring. He hasn't got an amateur record to to sort of speak of, an amateur career to speak of. He's learning his craft. He's a fighter that shows his lack of craft in the ring. Mm. He hasn't really got many ideas of what he's doing. He needs to learn his craft in the ring in this sort of fight. Fine. As Bob Aaron would say, we need to let him marinate for a bit. (laughs) Taking it slightly out of context. Sorry, Joe. I get you. I get you, mate. Right. Devin Haney has been arrested on firearms charges this morning. You just told me that when we got here and I was I was a bit surprised. But tell tell us a bit more about this, Joel. Well, can I just say you were a bit surprised and then realised that actually you weren't surprised <laughs> because we kind of expect this of any of the American fighters these days. Yeah. So he got picked up. He was reported by TMZ. He got pulled over in his car for um, changing lanes without indicating. Yeah. That's what the policeman How said dare anyway. He? Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> they always say this stuff, didn't they? Yeah. Yes. Anyway, but then to be fair, the policeman then come, harassed him in some way, I imagine. Yeah. And then actually found a semi-automatic weapon in his car. Yeah. Oh, well, fair enough. Yeah. Um, so he's he's been loud on bail yeah. or something. So I, this, though, I quite like it when these things happen, when he drops his right. <laughs> There's a bit of logic here, Joe, yeah. It's because when they think that there's a possibility of them getting in serious trouble and they're up in the courts, they suddenly start talking really big fights. Yes, yeah. Well, him and Tiafimo Lopez is the one that, because, well, this is, let's 
touch on this because this was an, another news story. So Tio's basically come out of uh, his retirement. No. Yeah, I know. Can you believe it? <laughs> And the reason he's done that is because if he'd vacated his belt, Devin Haney would have moved up, I think, to 140 to fight um, uh, someone, Barboza, off the top of my head. I can't remember his name. Arnold. That's it. So Tio said, no, I'm keeping the belt and I'll fight Devin Haney. Would and you- Devin Haney on Twitter said, let's do it. I mean, obviously, that's never an indication the fight's actually going to happen. You know, that'll you know be a brilliant Joe? fight, though. Will be, but do you know why the other reason why he um, he's not vacating the belt? He needs money. Well, because he's just not retiring. Yeah, right? exactly. He's just not retiring. <laughs> <laughs> he, just, he just said it because sometimes, <laughs> like Tyson Fury, he opens his mouth and stuff comes out. Yeah, yeah. And you need to <laughs> realise that you shouldn't listen to it and probably shouldn't even bloody report it. Yeah. So. He is like the lightweight Tyson Fury, isn't he? He's a, he's completely unhinged and he just took everything. He says stuff, words come out, none of it particularly. But then sometimes well thought out. really likable. As well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, like yeah. Tyson Fury is can sometimes. Be really, we forget that. It can, can be, be really likable, like Tyson Fury, but can also be you know the the, the guy you love to hate. Okay. But anyway, um, they we'll see how the whole Devin Haney thing pans out. I have to say. In the plethora of like boxing misdemeanors, that's probably one of the lowest ones I've ever seen. <laughs> Arrested on a firearms charge, carrying a gun in his car. Don't they all carry guns in America, Joel? I think it's the semi-automatic aspect of it, but I agree. I think, mate, I'm totally anti-gun. I think I'll carry a gun in America, mate. Yeah, no. Bonkers I, over there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. British boxing legend Prince Nassim Hamed, his son, Adam Hamed, will make his debut on the Usyk... Joe Joyce undercard in Poland. Now, I have to say, Joel, if Prince Nassim Ahmed is managing his son's career the same way he managed his own career post Brendan Ingle, then Adam's got no chance. I'm sorry. But, but. if he can punch <laughs> half as hard as his dad, then he could go really far. Yeah, yeah. This we're, is. We like is, a boxer's fight. So. Yeah. This is the continuing the sort of British boxing tradition of these, you know, famous sons sort of going, oh, I'll have some of that, yeah, but not being it. anywhere near as good. But this is, this is, so Marco Antonio Brera was the first boxer that I knew of that had come from a sort of middle class background. Yes. His yeah. parents were solicitors. I think one was a solicitor, one was a school teacher, something yeah. like that. And then became a boxer. It was so rare yeah. that rich kids... Would, yeah, would fight and this is what is changing I think in today's world because there is so much money in the sport and now boxers are leaving the sport with money Yeah, I think actually wealthy people are sort of going if their kids are into boxing going well yeah alright that's a that's actually a really worthwhile career if you make it even if you just have one or two big fights you could, yeah. you could be an absolute you know, multi-millionaire so it's, it's an interesting little change in the sport they also have the sort of celebrity route to go yeah. down you know yeah they could just keep fighting each other. You know, Eubank, Conor Ben. Could be its own category him. of boxing, like yeah. YouTuber boxing, couldn't it? It could be a split. <laughs> Bloodline boxing. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good and, name, actually. Really good name. You have well to be there, uh, related to a yeah. famous boxer. Yeah. And not you can't be adopted or anything like that. You've got to be yeah. bloodline. Yeah, we've got to have, you know, strict rules for this. This Dandy could be our uh, <laughs> bloodline boxing. <laughs> Right, um, HBO are releasing a two-part documentary on the great Oscar De La Hoya on July the 24th. This is the day before my birthday, and you're look, really looking forward to this. And I have to say, I sent a tweet out about this saying a certain heavyweight in this country could learn a thing or two from Oscar about fighting the best yeah. available opposition. You know, even if it means you've only got 30-odd fights by the time you retire, but you've fought best right let's move on to the kinahan of the week our kinahan of the week is tyson fury for announcing his so-called super fight against francis Ngannou, which will take place on october the 28th in riyadh saudi arabia where else that's where all the money is and quite rightly he's been getting it let you know left right and center on social media this fight is just a big kick in the teeth to, you know, boxing fans and boxing in and of itself because it's just going to be, I think, a glorified exhibition slash sparring session. It's not a real fight. Fury's WBC belt's not at stake, nor should it be. Basically, shouldn't be fighting Francis Ngannou. should be fighting Alexander Usyk. 
now I'm, you know, I was convinced he was ducking Usyk anyway because he doesn't want that difficult fight. This is more, you know, this is confirmation of that. He is completely ducked Usyk. But the, you know, the heavyweight division is now being held up yet again because of this nonsense fight. And, I mean, I'm sure you've got plenty to say about it. I would have absolutely zero problem with this fight whatsoever if it wasn't for the fact that Tyson Fury is not going to be fighting this year in a proper fight. Mm. The heavyweight champion of the world will not be defending his titles in the calendar year of 2023. That is an utter disgrace. Yeah. Now, Muhammad Ali had his sort of crossover fight against Inuke yeah. back in the 70s. You have had these sort of carnival carnival sort of fights yeah. every now and again in boxing. We obviously saw years ago with Mayweather and McGregor, but Mayweather was retired by then. It didn't really affect the sport. Yeah. Didn't like it anyway. Yeah. Uh, but this one is a guy at the top of the game. Yeah. In his peak. Yeah. Pricing himself out of fight after fight yeah. after fight. Yeah. And that is what he's doing. It's not that he can't make the fights, that he's pricing them out because when he's saying, well, it's not enough money for me, he's talking about sometimes, oh, I'm not taking that sort of slave wages, all of this sort of rubbish. What he's actually saying is, it's not saying, oh, I want 15, 20 million quid. Yeah. He's saying, I demand 80, 90, 100, 120 million. Yeah. This is, my person. This is actually what he's saying in order to fight any of the other top guys. That mm. is flat out pricing himself out of fight. Yeah, yeah. It's disgusting. It's, it's really horrible. It's also not as big a fight as I think they think it is. Tyson Fury isn't as big a star worldwide as they think he is. Yeah. Francis Ngannou certainly isn't as big a star in the world. Yeah. Um, Floyd Mayweather was a far bigger star than yeah. Tyson Fury is, and Conor McGregor is an infinitely bigger star than Francis Ngannou is. Yeah. So it's not going to do these crazy numbers, I don't think. Yeah. He's yeah. not American, he's Nigerian, yeah. Ngannou, and he's not fighting under the UFC banner. Yeah. Now, the other fight had the might of the UFC promotional arm yeah. backing it and pushing it. This hasn't. Yeah. This has got Frank Warren and Skills Challenge. I'm yeah. sorry, this is not going to be a worldwide, world sort of stopping event at mm. all. And therefore, it's not going to give them the numbers that they think it will. Yeah. Um, there's not much really more we can say about this other than the fact that it's just a kick in the teeth for boxing and, you know, boxing fans all over the world. So for any of our listeners who, who aren't aware, Francis Ngannou is the lineal, shall we say, UFC heavyweight champion of the world. But, and he left the UFC on pretty awful terms. And too right. Yeah. I mean, they don't, clearly don't pay their fighters enough yeah. money. And this is why this fight's being made. He's now getting the bag, which he, you know, clearly deserves. But we have to set out. He's, you know, no one's saying that right now he's the best MMA heavyweight on the planet. He's not a boxer. He's not a professional boxer. He's never been a professional boxer. He's a professional MMA fighter. He also, we have to say, hasn't fought in God knows how long. And, you know, he's now handicapped by having to fight the world's clearly best heavyweight mm. in a boxing match under boxing rules. Where's the test for Tyson Fury? I mean, it's shocking. We know, but this is where Tyson Fury is because this first got... When Ngannou left the UFC yeah. months ago, we said on this pod... Ugh, I think actually the Tyson Fury fight might happen. Mm. We said it ages ago that this could throw a spanner in the works of all the other heavyweight fights happening because Tyson Fury would be all over this one. Yeah. Um, um, well, it really started after the Dillian White fight, I think it was, when I'm sure it was when got he got in the ring afterwards mm. and he was discussing the fact that he'd fight him. So it's obviously been in you know the works. And I, I do feel a bit sorry for Frank Warren because he must think, how the hell am I, how do I cope with this lunatic who just like, you know, how do you promote someone like Tyson Fury who never does what anyone tells him or probably takes no advice from anyone? Well, do you know who he does take advice from? His wife. No, <laughs> Daniel Kinnaham. Yes. He's got his grubby paws all over this one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm glad you you said that because I did. I've I've read a, quite a bit about that. It looks like he's. I read that he flew into Dubai the day before the fight was signed, and then and then the fight was signed. Yeah. So you know who has he met in Dubai? I'm guessing it's Les. Daniel Kinnahan yeah. and. You know, well, apparently, the, let's whisper on here. I mean, the rumors are in boxing that Daniel Kinnahan actually runs Skills Challenge. Yeah which is the Saudi-based and the Dubai-based yeah. promotional outfit. 
which is ostensibly owned by Prince Khaled. Yeah. But the rumours are all over the place in boxing that it's actually completely run by Daniel Cunningham. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God, he must be like a truly international criminal of the highest calibre for him to be able to do this. People are still willing to work with him. He must have his finger in so many pies all over the world. So uh, anyway, Tyson Fury is the Kinnahan of the week. He must be a record uh, receiving recipient of this award. (laughs) He seems to get it so often these days. (laughs) Anyway, the Kinnahan of the week, Tyson Fury, that which brings shame on boxing. Right, let's move on to the magazine lottery. And last week I pulled out an edition of Boxing News dated the 3rd of March 2022, probably one of the most recent ones I've pulled out. And on the front was a picture of a fairly despondent-looking Josh Taylor and a very uh, happy-looking Jack Catterall, clearly thinking he'd won their fight. Lo and behold, he didn't. He lost that fight. And uh, it got me to thinking, Joel. Oh, did it, Josh? It got me to thinking. I like it when you say that. Big, you know, boxing robberies. So, coincidentally, I was reading a book called Murder on Federal Street, which is about a fighter from the, I think, 60s and 70s called Tyrone Everett, who was a Philly lightweight. And this is just such an interesting book for many reasons, and I'll touch on them. But one of the reasons it's interesting is because... There's a fairly consensus view amongst, you know, fairly wise boxing people that Tyrone Everett was the victim of one of boxing's biggest ever robberies. And that was his fight against uh, Alfredo Escalera, which took place in November 1976. Escalera at the time was the WBC junior lightweight champion. And in fact, it was a certain Harold Lederman who who said this, and, and I quote, this was just highway robbery, by far the worst decision I ever saw. He was actually ringside for that fight. And that was at the time, I think he was working for one of the big uh, New York um, papers at the time. So I decided to obviously watch the fight for, I better watch this fight, you know, see what they're saying. And I wrote some fairly detailed notes about it. And I'm going to read out some of them. So, and then, and then I'll tell you my score and then I'll touch on some of the bits about Tyrone Everett because his story is amazing. It should be a Hollywood movie. It's that interesting. And it's got, it's got that much sex, drugs, violence, everything. It is, it's a movie. It should be a movie. All the stuff we like. Right. So Tyrone Everett against Alfredo Escalera. So just to give you a bit of background, coming into this fight, Tyrone Everett, who, was he was a different Philly fighter because Philly at the time was known for its sluggers, the come forward fighter, your Benny Briscoes, right? Tyrone Everett was the opposite. He was very much a hit and don't get hit fighter, a slick counter-punching defensive wizard, I would say. And, you know, he he struggled, I think, to, be, to, to get fame because of that. He probably wasn't appreciated by, you know, the, the Philly locals. And he had to fight, you know, for that recognition. The fight actually had an attendance of 16,000, which was a record for an indoor fight in Pennsylvania, which still stands to this day. So at the time, he I think he, he had got the recognition, you know, people respected him, respected the fact that he'd fought so long and so hard to get this title opportunity. Now, Alfredo Escalera, who was the champion, his record at the time, time stood at 35 wins, seven losses, three draws with 20, 24 knockouts. And Tyrone Everett had a unblemished record of 34 and zero with 18 knockouts. Now, despite the fact that he was quite a defensive fighter, you know, he had a decent knockout ratio. The guy could bang too, if he wanted to, but more often than not, he liked to just, you know, he liked to uh, show his, his skill. Now, one thing I have to, to say, when you watch Tyrone Everett fight, there were two fighters who he really reminded me of. The first one was Pernell Whitaker, but the second one was Harold he- Graham. Yeah. He, he had the, he had a bit of that very stand upish sort of elusiveness, you know. He had that, he could, he could, he'd catch you with that uppercut coming in, which he, was a very Harold Graham move. Yeah, and he, I mean, he, he he had every punch in the book, but really he was very much a uh, try and avoid and fight on the back foot. Now, his own promoter, Russell Peltz, once said of him, look, Everett was a really good fighter, lightning quick, but he was a safety first guy. And they, them two had quite a strained relationship because Russell Peltz um, wanted him to be more of a Benny Briscoe type fighter, but it just wasn't in his uh, nature. Tyrone Everett was a very vain man. He was a handsome guy and he liked the way he looked, Joel. He's a bit like me. Um <laughs> 
he Did wanted he have bad eyesight like yeah. you too. <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he liked the way he looked. And and there was here's a quote that you all like, Joel. This is from Tyrone Everett himself. People say I don't like to get hit, and that's true. They say I don't look like a fighter. That I'm too pretty. I want to stay that way. Yeah, I love it. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Now I watched the fight, and I'm going to talk a bit about the aftermath and his and his life afterwards. So watching the fight, I thought the first three rounds were fairly uneventful, but I scored them very clearly to Tyrone Everett. I just thought he won them quite easily. Um, both men were cut in the third, and Tyrone Everett's was seemingly worse. But I still gave uh, Tyrone Everett that round. I thought there was early on there was a massive golfing class to be honest with you um tyrone everett though is not really hurting alfredo escalera alfredo escalera is the come forward pressure fighter in this fight he's missing a lot but and tyrone everett's ca- you know catching him at will but he's not hurting him it's obvious that he's not he doesn't have the power to to hurt alfredo escalera anyway um in, in round 4 i thought this was a big tyrone everett round he hurt I, he, for me he actually hurt alfredo escalera it was a wicked straight left and he opened up another cut but he also got cut himself later. Now, round five was the first round I gave to the champ. He caught Tyrone with a big right hook early on, and that really that shook him. And he also caught him with a straight right down the pipe. Now, this is one of the things that maybe influences the judges, is that Escalera barely catches Everett in this fight. When he catches him, it's very eye-catching. And, and Everett's um, legs had the habit of dipping when he got caught. Exactly. So it yeah. looked like he'd, you know, he'd been hurt. So um, I gave that round to uh, Escalera. But, you know, Everett was still countering effectively, but the big shots won the champ around. Round six was fairly even, in my opinion. It was a hard one to score. Um, I gave it to... Escalera. So I started scoring the rounds which were even in his favour, just to give him the benefit of the doubt, you know. Um, round seven I gave to uh, Tyrone Everett. This is when I think the frustration of uh, Escalera is setting in. He's he's actually throwing really wildly now. Um, you can tell that he's he's getting the hump. He just cannot catch this guy at all. Um, round eight was a massive Tyrone Everett hand. He was just landing right-hand leads at will. It was, you know embarrassing as a fighter to get caught consistently with right-hand leads. Uh, Everett can't miss. He's not hurting the champ, but he's, my notes say he's completely embarrassing him now, right right now, in my opinion. Round nine was the best round of the fight. What what a round that was. Both of them were throwing and landing uh, landing huge shots. Uh, I thought Escalera probably edged it by virtue of the, (laughs) I wrote here, he edges the round by virtue of having been completely outclassed so far and he lands some punches for once. So again, I've been generous. I've given him the the round. Um, Round 10, I thought was a fairly even round. It was quite a quiet round. I think both had maybe emptied the tank a fair bit now. The, the, The later rounds in this fight were a bit scrappy and, you know, not a lot really happened. Again, I scored it for Escalera. Round 11, um, Escalera was really aggressive. Doesn't really land anything, but Everett seems to take the round off. So again, I give it to Escalera, just by virtue of work rate. Uh, round 12, again, is a, a really close round, and I had Escalera uh, shading it. Uh, again, you know, uh, there was no... Re- what could I do? A close round, I'm going to give it to the champ, especially knowing full well that this was considered a robbery. I'm giving him the benefit of every close round that I can. Round 13 was a disastrous uh, round for Tyrone Everett in the in the sense that he, um, and again, I couldn't tell whether it was a punch or a clash of heads, but a massive gash opens up on his forehead and blood is literally pouring out. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible cut. Escalera senses the time is now and he's very aggressive. He's really going for it, but Tyrone Everett is fighting clever. He's on the back foot. Yeah. He's, you know, damage limitation he knows he's been cut bad he's just got to ride the round out get his cut man to sort him out get back into it i feel i just want to say in that round as well he was also still walking him on to punches constantly throughout the round yep yeah he never was walking escalera on to punches throughout yeah you're right because i'll read this this is verbatim from my notes you haven't seen this however in the last minute tyrone everett roars back and lands numerous clean counter shots an even round for me, but I'm giving it to Escalera. Yeah. Again, round 14 is another close round, which I think actually I gave it to Tyrone Everett. It was, uh, again, a very quiet round. Both are barely landing now, um, but Tyrone Everett was landing, um, you know, counter shots and uh, Escalera just can't land. He can't hit him. He's coming forward, as you say, and again, it must be that 
again, I just think dozy judges must be watching this. And if they're not seeing the punches that Tyrone Everett's landing, I don't see how you can fail to see them because he's clearly landing. But they just see the come forward fight. Yeah, all they're seeing is aggression. And what's obvious about this round, though, is that the the cut that Tyrone Everett got in the previous round is still pouring blood. And I'm and and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, is this swaying the judges now? Really, is it swaying the judges? Um, now, when I got to round fifteen, despite the fact that I thought Tyrone Everett was, you know, fairly comfortably winning the fight, it still had the feel of a round that would determine the outcome of the fight. And that's you know, that's when you get a bit on you think, oh. I think he's won it, but it's there's so many close rounds that you just never know which way the judges are going to go. Escalera's again very aggressive, probably sensing he needs a knockout. Again, Everett's on the back foot, but he lands two or three big right-hand shots and they open up cuts on Escalera, um, who is now bleeding. It's it's still a close round, but I sc- I'd score it for Tyrone Everett. Now, I've scored this 10 rounds to five in favour of Tyrone Everett, right? And that's being generous to Alfredo Escalera. When the scorecards were announced, however, we had a bit of a shock. So Judge Lutres scored it 145-143 to the champ Escalera. Uh, This is funny because Lutres was the hometown judge. And Russell Peltz, who was uh, Everett's promoter, he genuinely thought that the announcer had, had misread that scorecard, especially as Tress was the hometown judge and he'd been selected as such. You know, you have yeah. one judge from Puerto Rico uh, who's uh, Escalera's, you know, essential judge. You've got the hometown judge and then you've got the referee. They're the ones who are scoring it. Then Judge Ishmael Fernandez of Puerto Rico uh, scores it 146 to 143 in favour of Alfredo Escalero. The last, the referee's scorecard is totally meaningless. It's already a a victory for the champ Escalera. Um, incidentally, it was the referee who scored it uh, 148-146 for Tyrone Everett. So Escalera retains his title by way of split decision. Now, it's a miracle there wasn't a riot, but there's there's a few reasons why I think there wasn't a, a riot or a big outrage in this. One reason was because um, as popular as Everett had become, he still wasn't Benny Briscoe popular, right? Yeah. The other thing which was quite interesting is that they... Um, announced the two judges' scores in favour of the winner straight away. Usually, you give one to the, you know, one to one fighter, one to the next one. Everyone's on the edge of their seats. It took the anticipation away a little bit. Yeah, they didn't dissipated. do it, they, it. But that was something that was reasonably common back in them days that they didn't have the sense of drama. When reading out scores, they just did it in a sort of uniform fashion. Yeah, maybe alphabetical order, whatever it was on the day that they, however they decided to read it out. It was a strange thing about boxing back then. It didn't really catch on until the eighties, and yeah, strange times. Uh, none of the ringside press scored it in favour of Escalera. Though. They all scored it in favour of Everett. Um, when Lutres was que- queried about the verdict, he basically said that he felt uh, the champ had been the more aggressive fighter. But what's interesting is that. Um, Lutres, this is, I think, a bit of a, I'm going to say, bullshit uh, excuse because Tress had been a judge in, uh, I think, at least three of Tyrone Everett's previous fights, right? He knew how Tyrone Everett fought. He fought the same way in every fight. And there was one fight in particular, I can't remember who it was against, where he scored a points victory in favour of Tyrone Everett, despite the fact that Tyrone Everett would have been knocked down for the first time in his career in that fight. So, you know... uh, a little bit rich to say, look, the champ was the more aggressive fighter. Now, here's what's really happened, Joel. This was a fixed fight, in my opinion. There's plenty of circumstantial evidence, even though it's never been proven, but there's plenty of circumstantial evidence. So Lutres, the, the judge, the hometown judge who surprised everyone, he had a brother who worked as a teller at a racetrack, and I think a teller is basically someone who just takes bets, right? The brother in question was thought to be an associate of someone called Bill Daly, Honest Bill Daly, which is a bit of a, uh, you know, me being a bit sarcastic there. Guess who Bill Daly was a henchman for? Frankie Carbo and Francis Palermo. There we go. So these guys controlled uh, boxing. They were mob guys who controlled boxing from the sort of 40s onwards. Yeah, 40s and 50s. And uh, as we know, as you've alluded to, they were fixing fights left, right and centre during that time. And they were strong-arming anyone who just didn't want to go along with their schemes. 
Now, what's interesting is that at this point in time, though, Frankie Carbo was in prison, but uh, Palermo wasn't. He'd actually been released after a 10-year stint in jail, and he was now linking up with you know some of his old stooges, such as Honest Bill <laughs> Daly. In the week leading up to the fight, uh, Bill Daly had been spotted in Philadelphia, and on the day of the fight itself, he was found in Russell Peltz's office for some unknown reason. Days after the fight itself, Russell Peltz crossed paths with uh, Palermo at the airport. Yep. It was all a bit just co- too coincidental. Why on earth was Palermo around at that time? Um, I think it's because they had eyes on this fight being a certain uh, result. Um, now, Tyrone Everett himself, he never fought for a world title again and a rematch never materialised Guess which promoter Alfredo Escalero moved to shortly after the fight, though, John? Go on. Have a guess, mate. Well, probably the most devious... Don dirty, King. Yep, yeah, the devious Don God. King. Who was new on the scene at this point. He was, yeah. Now, the reason Tyrone Everett never got a world title fight was because six months after this fight, he was shot and killed by his partner at the time, which was Carolyn McKendrick. Now, this is where, you, this, is where this whole story becomes Hollywood for me. It's just mad. His longtime girlfriend, Carolyn McGendrick, uh, admitted shooting him in the head on the 26th of May, 1977, claiming self-defense after months of alleged physical abuse at the hands of Tyrone Everett. Um, unbelievably, at the crime scene, right, were 39 packets of heroin, right, and Tyrone Everett was as clean living a boxer as you could find. He would never touch the stuff. He was yeah. very much a lived the life of a, of a boxer. But there was also an eyewitness to the murder by the name of Tyrone Terry Price, who was known to be a transvestite and claimed to have been having an affair with Tyrone Everett at the time. Now, Tyrone Jeez. Everett was known as one of the, an absolute ladies man of the highest caliber. Yeah. This guy was just with women. They, would left- talk, they talked about it on the commentary for this fight. What ladies man Yeah, was. exactly, exactly, exactly. So this story becomes even murkier. Like you've got this guy who's an eyewitness claiming to have been in an aff- having, you know, uh, sexual relationship with Tyrone Everett. Let's go back to the drugs. Caroline McKendrick, right? She was the estranged wife of a lunatic drug dealer named Ricardo McKendrick. And he had t- really strong ties to the Black Mafia, who were a criminal gang who basically controlled heroin trafficking in Philadelphia at the time. They were savage, mate. They were one of the most savage gangs you could meet. I mean, they did some unbelievably brutal things to people. You know, just, you would never want to cross paths with yeah. them. So basically, he was going out with the estranged wife of someone who was essentially a Absolute gangster, a lunatic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, ultimately, Caroline, Caroline McKendrick was found guilty of murder in the third degree. Now, that's the least serious of the homicide charges. And it stipulates, and I'll read it here, Whilst there was malicious intent to inflict bodily harm, there was no intention to take a life. And she was also acquitted of all the heroin, uh, sorry, heroin-related charges. So to this day, no one really knows, or you know, people have theories, but no one can, uh, you know, say for sure why heroin was found at the scene of that crime. No one can also say for sure whether Tyrone Everett was a domestic abuser. No one can say for sure whether he was. Uh, bisexual, basically. Um, She spent five years in prison. And basically, as a result of this, you've got Tyrone Everett, who, in my opinion, could have been, uh, you know, uh, certainly a Hall of Fame-worthy fighter, a world champion. I mean, his reputation was sort of irreparably harmed as a result Mm. of that. You know, you have these questions now. Was he an abusive man? Was he involved in the distribution of drugs? There's there's actually evidence to suggest that he might have been um, uh, looking to make money outside of boxing for yeah. his future. And that's why there were drugs found um, at his, uh, uh, part, you know, his, his girlfriend's uh, place at the time. Was he bisexual? Who knows? Not, I mean, all these questions that come as a result of this story and are such a mystery... I mean, what a really sad ending for a fighter who was potentially destined for greatness. It's mad. Another boxing tale of woe. Yeah. I've got to ask you, though, do, do you think this is one of boxing's biggest robberies? Yes. Ask me how I scored it, Joe. How as did you, you score As you it? asked me to score the fight. Go on. Uh, I scored it 15 and 0. 
15 rounds to nothing. No way. Yeah, I thought that he just outboxed him clearly in every round. Basically. You wouldn't even give close rounds to Escalier, no. No, no, why? Because you 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 scored it like that, and yeah. fair play, but I would prefer to score fights on what I'm seeing in front of me as opposed to... Yeah. Because I think that's being fair to Tyrone over it. Yeah, yeah. To say, right, I'm, I'm just going to score it as I see it, yeah. as opposed to taking any outside stuff uh, into it and never should I, I hate it when a British fighter's fighting abroad and a fighter's fighting abroad and we go oh but we gave the close rounds to them because we know that the judges are going to be bent well we shouldn't be scoring fights on the basis that uh, some other people are going to be corrupt about things or yeah. whatever. so I just scored it as I saw it Tyrone Everett outclassed him in basically every round this sport is about hitting and not getting hit yeah. and Tyrone Everett barely got hit in that fight yeah Absolutely. I'm going to give a, a bit of a shout out to Sean Nam, who wrote the book Murder on Federal Street. It was just brilliant. I loved reading it. And he go, Joel, you need to read Thank this you, now. Mate. cannot wait. That sounded amazing. That was a lovely little setup for that book. Read mate. it. It's lovely. brilliant. I'm going to. Fantastic. Cheers, Joe. Right. You've got to now grab a magazine for your segment next week. What have you got for us, Joel? I have got Boxing News, 24th of July, 2009. And we've got a brilliant picture of Amir Khan. Oh, never heard of him. <laughs> Sorry. Who said Khan couldn't come back? MEN six-page special. I am I think that this would have been the Marco Antonio Brera fight, mate. Ah, possibly, yeah. Which I was at. Oh, were you? So we can have a good little chat about this. Is it that fight? Let me check. Oh, and he was with Freddie Roach at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he comes wow. Freddie Roach let me just see. Is that is that what this fight was? Sorry, there's no. No, it's Katelnik. Ah, okay, Katelnik. But that's brilliant. That's no, was a that great, his that's world title good, fight? That was his Katelnik. first world title fight. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. that was his first title fight. It was after his loss um, to Bradus Prescott. A couple of fights afterwards, he'd, he'd fought uh, he'd fought an Irish guy, Olsen Fagan. Then he'd fought uh, Marco Antonio Barrera, and then he, he fought this guy, he fought Katelnik. Oh, wow. That was a really interesting time in boxing. You've also got Cotto Pac-Man on the front page as well, saying, Cotto Pac-Man, it's on. Oh, wow. So maybe, actually, this is, a, this is an excuse to do a little feature on on, on Cotto's post... Uh, Post-peak years. Post-peak years. Yeah, because he took a he beating his, in this fight, didn't well, he? Got, I think the way to put it is he got, he, he got his peak beat out of him ah, yes. over this period. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think I wouldn't do that. Excellent. Right. We hope you've enjoyed listening to uh, this edition. And uh, Joel, any final words? Love you all. And on that note, goodbye. <laughs>